This week, I decided to Google. I like Googling random things. It's fun. You ever Googled yourself? That's kind of scary, actually. But I decided to Google the top 10 most important moments of history, kind of out of curiosity in my prep for this morning's study. And the results, I have to say, were not only interesting, but they were diverse. Some of these lists included events like tearing down the Berlin Wall or the fall of the Roman Empire, others the invention of Gutenberg's printing press or the nuclear bombing of both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. One list even referenced in the top 10 most impactful moments of world history, the great tsunami of 2004. It was a diverse list. And while there were minor divergences from list to list, almost everyone included things like World War I, World War II, the spread of Islam, the Renaissance, Reformation, Industrial Revolution, and most importantly, almost every list included the emergence of Christianity. According to the Pew Forum on Religion, today there are over 2.18 billion members of Christianity, making it the largest religion in the world. According to Frontier Harvest Ministries, there are 20,500 full-time workers and 10,200 foreign missionaries in what's classified as the unevangelized world. These people we should be praying for. There are 1.31 million full-time Christian workers and what would be called the evangelized non-Christian world. They also demand our prayer. And there are 306,000 foreign missionaries and 4.19 million full-time Christian workers in what's classified as the Christian world. They also deserve our prayer. As one historian pointed out concerning Christianity, he said that whether you are a Christian or not, you cannot honestly say as a historian that the life of Jesus of Nazareth did not dramatically impact history. At the time of his life, it might not have seemed so dramatic to the world at large. He never traveled more than a few days' journey from his hometown, and it was only after he left earth that his teachings began to spread across and beyond the homeland. Today, Christianity, as one of the largest religions of the world, is dominant. This historian concludes by saying, Jesus set off an atomic religious bomb that is still felt today. That's an undeniable fact of human history. And the book of Acts is vitally important to history because it and it alone explains how this humble Jewish carpenter was able to impact the world in such a way that we are still experiencing its effects today. In essence, how did Jesus who admittedly in his time period never traveled too far from his hometown. His impact was solely regionally. Like how did Jesus, after his death, his resurrection, whatever were to happen, how did he make such an impact? Well, the mechanism, the answer, as explained in the book of Acts, is the church. Even a cursory reading of the first five chapters of the book of Acts will reveal that just a few weeks following Jesus' ascension, the events that were rapidly unfolding in Jerusalem through the church were incredible, revolutionary, and in many ways, supernatural. And though the church was making an undeniable impact, you read through the first five chapters, you see this. 3,000 are saved during Pentecost. 
Peter's second sermon, five more thousand are added, not to mention the people that are there just to witness. It had caught the attention of the religious authorities. It was making an impact. It was creating waves. And we noted last Sunday how as a result of this, this new work, this new movement, this thing started by Jesus, carried forth through his disciples, it wouldn't go unopposed for very long. You see, Satan's initial strategy was intimidation. In order to squelch what was happening, we saw how the religious establishment severely threatened Peter and John to no longer speak nor teach in the name of Jesus. And yet, as we discussed, Peter and John not only refused to capitulate right there in front of them, like, hey, you can tell us to do that, but we're going to obey God over man. No line of demarcation for us. This is what we're doing. They didn't cave to their demands. And we're told that not just Peter and John, but all of them, after the report, after being filled anew with the Holy Spirit, we're told that they all spoke the word of God with boldness. And so it's clear that this first satanic strategy of squelching this movement of Jesus to intimidate Jesus' followers, it didn't work. It backfired. Which means that now as we got into chapter 5, we saw Satan shift strategies. If I am intimidating them, but they don't seem intimidated. As a matter of fact, they're, they're boldened all the more. Now I'm going to try to infiltrate the ranks. You see, in contrast with Barnabas, it was evident that Ananias and Sapphira were not genuine believers. They were hypocrites. They were fakers who were trying to gain influence in this church, this new movement, through their perceived generosity, which explains why God ended up dealing so swiftly, deliberately, and publicly in intervening, striking both Ananias and Sapphira dead in order to preserve the integrity of his work from the corrosive infiltration of Satan. And as a result of this divine act, this intervention of God, we're told that two things happened as a byproduct. First, great fear came upon all the church. I would say that if people are dropping dead in the midst of the church service, that great fear is a natural byproduct of what's happening. But secondly, we're told, and and most interesting, that none of the rest, which is speaking of none of those that were believers, so none of the rest, the unsaved, the unbelieving world, none of them dared join them. But the people esteemed them, speaking of the church, highly. One can imagine that this type of holy intervention would have had a negative impact, a negative effect on church growth. People dying in the church because of hypocrisy, you can't imagine to be a really good pro-growth church strategy. I'm sure that the apostles had a board meeting after the fact thinking, this is not good. We've just now got all this momentum. Everything's jiving. Everything's clicking. If hypocrites are going to start dropping dead in the church, we have a big PR problem. Twitter's trending. Facebook's blowing up. People are dying at that church. Stay away. And so you can imagine that this result, these consequences, would end up giving this this dip in attendance. That's what we would expect naturally. And yet, verse 14 of Acts 5, look at it with me, we're told that instead of this dip in church attendance, what happens? Believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. Now, this word increasingly, it's an interesting word. In the Greek, it's the adverb Milan, meaning to a greater degree. 
This indicates that following the event of Ananias and Sapphira being struck dead in the church, that believers were now being added to the Lord in a greater degree than they had at any other time beforehand. So you look at the situation, you're like, people dying off in the church, not a good thing. God's striking people down, not a good thing. You would think it would dip. There would be a quick, you know, on the the pie chart of church attendance that is gonna go down at least for a while so we can recover. But instead, it does the total opposite. To the point that Luke's like, now as a result of all this thing, the church is afraid, unbelievers are freaked out, there's a reverence, there's a holiness, that the result, the residual effect is that now people were getting saved to a degree unlike anything that had happened before. Now that's mind-blowing because as already mentioned, 3,000 Pentecost, 5,000 Peter's second sermon, 3,000, 5,000, but now people are being added to the point that all Luke the historian can do is says it was a lot of people. It was more than 3,000, it was more than 5,000. In essence, he's kind of saying and conceding, I don't know how many people. As a matter of fact, from this point forward, we'll never see Luke try to put a numerical value on who's being added. He couldn't do it, which is mind-blowing to me because the conventional wisdom of church growth gurus, their, their wisdom is contrary to what we see here in Acts 5. As a matter of fact, it's kind of like the polar opposite. What's happening here defies conventional wisdom because people say today that the only way a church can be effective in the 21st century is by creating a Sunday worship environment whereby unbelievers can feel accepted and welcome. It's across the board. Every church growth book you'll read, every seminar you'll go to, every conference it's held, this is one of the most pervasive concepts in the church today. To be successful in the 21st century, you've got to create a Sunday atmosphere where unbelievers, non-Christians, will feel welcome, will feel at home. And to accomplish this aim, many seeker-friendly churches intentionally dumb down the truth of Scripture. They avoid topics of moral absolutes. They incorporate slick marketing and multimedia techniques, all with the desire of fostering a positive, non-threatening spiritual experience for everyone who might be in attendance. Ironically, the church in Acts, the church we're supposed to be modeling ourselves after, took the opposite approach. While it's true that there were indeed unbelievers who stayed away out of fear, that's stated. Luke tells us as a direct result of this reverential atmosphere, the church afraid, the community freaked out, that the result of this was that multitudes, can't even put a number, were drawn to the church, turned from sin, converted and followed Jesus. Too many to even be counted. And we must ask, why was this church so successful? And I believe the key to the success of this church we find in Acts 5 was that this church was clearly distinct from the culture around it. This church stood in stark contrast to the world It offered people a genuine experience in Jesus that neither the dead religion of Judaism was offering 
or the dead Hellenistic paganism of Rome was offering. You see, people in this culture, they were hungry. And while some will say that the techniques should change because the culture has changed, you know, I actually kind of think that the culture here in the first century is very, very similar to what we have today. You see, it's interesting that the conditions here in the first century Jerusalem culture were similar and are similar to what we have in the 21st century. Empty religion, we see that a lot in the South, don't we? And pagan hedonism, or the pursuit of pleasure. It's what existed in the first century. It's what exists in the 21st century. People then and today were hungry for something real, authentic, and genuine. Though the seeker-friendly model of the church has proven incredibly successful in attracting Generation X, Generation X is defined as those who were born post-World War II baby boom up to about 1980. And though the seeker-friendly church has admittedly been very successful for this age group of people, I am convinced, matter of fact, with almost a sh without a shadow of a doubt, that this model, the seeker-friendly model, though successful with Generation X, will die out in the next 10 years because of its ineffectiveness in reaching millennials. Millennials are those that are born after 1980. Gen X, also known as the MTV generation, is without a doubt the most superficial, image-driven, egocentric, commercialized, materialistic generation in American history, making them the perfect group of people for the big church with little substance model. Everything else in culture offers that to Gen X and church has done the same. For more information on Generation X, I encourage you to watch the six-part documentary that's narrated by Rob Lowe titled The 80s, The Decade That Made Us. It's a fascinating examination of, of the 80s, that generation, and not only how it impacted uh, politics, social economic policies, but also they go into how it impacted the church. We've seen an explosion in megachurches for this very reason. Now, though much research needs to be done, it doesn't take a PhD in sociology to recognize that millennials are radically different than their predecessors. Gen X. Pew Research Center issued the first report of its kind actually last month, March 2014, in which they discovered a singular characteristic of the millennial generation is that this new group of people, this new group within American society, has become increasingly detached from institutions. That's the one general characteristic of millennials, according to Pew. Their report says that 50% of millennials, aged 34 and younger, describe themselves today as being politically independent. Did you catch that? 50% of millennials claim no political affiliation. They claim to be independent, with 29% of millennials claiming no religious affiliation. Pew notes that these numbers are are at or near the highest levels of political and religious disaffiliation recorded for any generation. Pew also observes that millennials have been keeping their distance from marriage, which is another core institution within our society. Just 26% of adult millennials are married. This is down 10%, same age group of Generation X, 22% 
from the baby boomers and 39% from the silent generation. The medium age at first marriage for millennials is now the highest in modern American history. The average age for millennials to marry is 29 for men and 27 for women. In response to this question, generally speaking, would you say that most people can be trusted or you can't be too careful in dealing with people? Just 19% of millennials say that most people can be trusted. This is down 12% from Generation X and 21% from the baby boomers. Pew observes that millennials have emerged into adulthood with the lowest levels of social trust than any generation before them. Pew concludes that now ranging in age 18 to 33, millennials are relatively unattached to political and religious organizations. They're linked by social media, burdened by debt, distrustful of people, and no rush to marry, and ironically, optimistic about the future. The Barna Group an organization that's been compiling data on millennials, specifically specifying in how millennials handle church. They've been doing this, compiling data for the last 20 years. The Barna Group claims that 52%, excuse me, that 52% of millennials do not attend church, according to their research, with nearly, catch this, 59% of Christians who grow up in church walking away from their faith at some point during the first decade of their adult life. 59%, 52% don't attend church, 59% of those do walk away within the first 10 years. Now, while millennials who have remained faithful attenders, when they were asked to identify what has helped contribute to their, their growing faith, trying to figure out what is, what is it that keeps millennials, that the very few that stay, what keeps them connected? It's interesting, but church doesn't make the top 10 list. Doesn't even make the top 10 list. Instead, millennials identify prayer, family, friends, the Bible, having children, and their relationship with Jesus as the most common drivers of spiritual growth. David Kinneman, author of the book Unchurched, he commented that millennials are rethinking most of the institutions that arbitrate life. From marriage and media to government and church, they have grown up in a culture and among peers who are often neutral and resistant to the gospel. Millennials often describe church as not relevant or say that attending worship services feels like a boring duty. One of the specific criticisms, and catch this, that millennials frequently make about Christianity is that it does not offer deep, thoughtful, or challenging answers to life and a complex culture. As a millennial myself, 30 years of age, I believe that the reason this younger generation is leaving the church in droves is actually very simple. I don't think it's that complicated. I don't think it takes a whole lot of studies. As a matter of fact, I think the studies that have been, that have been done validate this point. You see, church, as, a, as with many other institutions, is no longer perceived by millennials as being genuine and authentic. This is why they leave it. 
They don't perceive that church is genuine. They don't see it as authentic. And thus, they don't want anything to do with it, as with political parties, as with marriage, and the list can go on and on and on. And what's worse, don't blame the millennials for this perspective because they actually are 100% correct in their assessment. Why are millennials abandoning the Democratic Party while still remaining liberal on many social issues? Why then do millennials refuse to join a Republican Party that's trying to embrace a more libertarian mindset? Millennials, according to Pew, prefer to be independent because both political institutions are perceived by millennials as being phony and disingenuous. It used to be that you just adopted the political party of your parents, of your dad. If your parents were Republican, you were Republican. If your parents were Democrat, you were Democrat. But today, because millennials look at both political parties and say, they're all the same, they're all phony, they're all corrupt, we have no taste for either of them, we'll instead be independent. Our social views are more in line with the Democrats. We might gravitate as millennials towards being more libertarian. The statistics on a millennial's view of the NSA, mind-blowing. But neither want to be a part of either party. They totally bail on it. We have to consider, why are millennials abandoning the traditional view of marriage for a more libertine approach? <laughs> well, because more often than not, a millennial's experience with this institution has been negative. Sad to say, but with over 50% of, of marriages, whether you're a Christian or not, ending in divorce, is there any surprise that millennials do not believe the sanctity of the institution argument is a valid reason to deprive a gay couple in love of the right to marry? They look at the institution and they're like, my parents couldn't even stay together. And when they did, they weren't in love. And I have no respect for marriage in and of itself because my experiences are negative. So why deprive? The greater question for millennials is why marry at all? Because all it's done is caused heartache and it's phony and my experiences have been negative. You see, seeker-friendly churches that appeal to Gen X are resisted by millennials, I believe for the same basic reason. Because these churches attempt to appeal to everyone, what do they end up doing? They end up standing for nothing. And in the end, present what is perceived by millennials to be an empty, meaningless, superficial spiritual experience. Millennials don't attend traditional churches for the same basic reason, because these steeples in the community, no pun intended, are viewed as being legalistic filled with blatant hypocrites and have been mired in scandal after scandal after scandal, millennials, they don't go there because they don't find them trustworthy. I mean, should it come as a surprise to anyone that only 16% of millennials say they have a good impression of Christians? You know the most common perception of Christians by millennials? 87% say that Christians are judgmental. It's the most dominant characteristic that millennials have towards Christians. You know, it's true that millennials have a fascination with what seems authentic. Like millennials really love things that are genuine. Unlike the Xers who drove Bud and Miller to the bank 
millennials are instead driving the force behind the microbrew and craft beer movement, rejecting commercialized beer and instead going after things that seem more pure or more organic or more authentic, more genuine. Unlike the Xers who made Jack and Jim a staple, millennials are making pre-prohibition whiskey vogue and have inspired a resurgence of classic American cocktails. You even have speakeasies popping up around town. Unlike the Xers who gave up on good music for a digital imitation, millennials are instead raiding their grandparents' basements in search of real analog record players. Unlike the Xers who sold out on quality for a quick processed Happy Meal, millennials are instead fostering a commercial shift back to what's perceived to be natural or homegrown produce. After being raised in a society that oozes commercialization, millennials have reacted with a craving for things that seem genuine, that seem authentic, while also having a great distaste for things that appear to be corrosive or corrupt or contrived. When comparing the 20-somethings who remained active in church beyond high school with those that dropped out, the Barna group uncovered a significant singular difference between the two groups. They claim that those who stay in church, millennials who stay in church after graduating high school are twice as, are, are twice as more likely to do so if they have had and developed a close personal friendship with an adult inside the church. Twice is more likely. David Kinneman observed, among those who remain active, this much is clear. The most positive church experience among millennials are relational. This stands true from the inverse as well. Seven out of 10 millennials who drop out of church did not have a close friendship with an adult with nearly nine out of 10 never having a mentor either. Now his conclusion is a popular conclusion. It's actually driving some of the shifts within seeker-friendly churches, but I wholeheartedly disagree. David Kinneman, he says that the implications of this is that huge proportions of church-going teenagers do not feel relationally accepted in church. This kind of information should be a wake-up call to ministry leaders as well as to church churched adults of the necessity of becoming friends with the next generation of believers. In essence, we need to make millennials feel welcomed, feel at home. In 10 years of youth ministry, I have seen firsthand, indeed, the incredible impact that adult mentors have had on millennials. The impact that it's had on me. But understand Millennials who have this connection, they don't remain in church because they feel relationally accepted. The key is that these relational connections model for the millennial an authentic, genuine form of Christianity that the millennial respects, embraces, and wants to emulate. It's not that, hey man, he was my friend, he was my buddy, because you can be buddies outside of church. It's, hey, I saw real Christianity, real, raw, unfiltered Christian experience in that dude. And man, that impacted my life. Over and over and over again, I see this. I know this in working with youth ministry. Now, 
not a new concept. Once again, we're, we're connecting culture, first century culture, our culture. Ironically, the Apostle Paul, he exhorted the Corinthians to do what? Come to church and feel welcome. Feel at home. No, he says, imitate me just as I'm imitating Christ. Let's do this together. Mano y mano, one on one. Paul mentored young men and he let them see his life and see something real and see something authentic. I'm sure that Timothy, when Timothy endured trials and tribulations and persecutions, as many of these young men did who were mentored by Paul, I'm sure they remembered how Paul handled these things because they saw it. They witnessed Paul being beaten and dragged out and thrown out as dead and get up and go back to preach. They saw something real. And what's real, well, empty Judaism didn't offer it. And nor did paganism offer it. At Calvary 316, we not only desire to be Jesus' model for the church, like like we want to emulate that model and adopt that model. That's why we're studying the book of Acts at this point in our church, because we want to allow the book of Acts to dictate our church policy. Forget about conventional wisdom. We want this wisdom to be applied, the blueprint for the church. That's what we're desiring. But understand, we're also convinced that the best way to reach the next generation, and all, honestly, all generations, is by personally demonstrating and verbally encouraging people to have a genuine, authentic Christian experience as modeled by Jesus himself. You see, understand, millennials don't want the gospel dubbed down into self-help nuggets or surface-level Bible lessons and a crazy, complex, information-driven world that presents more problems than answers. Millennials, as even stated by themselves, crave deep, thoughtful, challenging answers and how to find meaning and purpose to a life in a complex culture. Millennials want the word of God taught, but they desire logically based explanations, not fast paced overviews. And since millennials will challenge everything because they don't trust people, they love expositional teaching. I'm convinced of that because when we get to topics, you can't say I'm picking that out because I know you're dealing with it. You can trust that this is just what God wants to say because we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So we're removing the trust of an individual, which you don't have, to a trust of God. That God is bringing this topic up. You can deal with God or not. That's on you. But understand, before applying or discussing the implications of a truth, pastors, when dealing with millennials, need to take a moment and validate that truth. We don't do that enough. We try to do that here at Calvary 316. We also believe that millennials don't want a worship experience that's been relegated into nothing more than mindless repetition or energetic pop-driven sing-alongs. That millennials in a superficial and emotionally draining world crave a deeper, more passionate way to express themselves than Katy Perry sing-alongs. Millennials desire an opportunity, an avenue, a conduit to be able to praise God with just as much of their brain as their heart. Which is why we see a renaissance within the millennial church of old hymns. Because not only does it provide me the access, the ability to exalt God with my soul, but also with my mind. 
that there's doctrine, there's theology, that there's depth to my words, that it's not empty. I'm convinced that millennials will embrace a church life that they find to be logically consistent and clearly in sync with what the Bible has to say. But I am also keenly aware that because millennials have this built-in distrust of people, they will quickly and passionately resist submitting to a church life based solely on the opinions of man. If you can't point to scripture and validate it, millennials, check out, man. If you show a millennial what God has to say about various issues and explain why God took the approach, say, man, this is not my opinion. This is just the truth. You take it, you leave it. Millennials respect it. Now, sometimes they leave it because we're all sinners. However, if a millennial perceives, and I've seen this in youth ministry, if they perceive that a person in authority is enforcing a position on top of or beyond what God has to say, they will reject it and leave the church because their intrinsic distrust of people and institutions was just reinforced. Let me give you an example. And I don't mean to get myself into trouble in any way, but this is just an apt example. When a church teaches that the moderate, responsible consumption of alcohol is permitted in Scripture, only to then actively restrict the enjoyment of this liberty, millennials intrinsically resist and in many instances will leave that church altogether altogether, because what they're saying and how they're behaving doesn't jive. It's not consistent. They reason if God's word is the final authority on such matters. It's not like the Bible doesn't say some things about alcohol. It says a lot of things about alcohol. Then why aren't we allowing God to be the final authority when ruling on such matters? If the Bible teaches it, then why are we now allowing a man to say that we shouldn't do it? If the Bible says we can, like millennials don't trust that. They don't like that. They don't jive with that. However, when a church teaches that the moderate responsible consumption of alcohol is permitted in scripture, only to then actively instruct the enjoyment of this liberty within the guidelines of the Bible, of which there are many, millennials intrinsically accept, and they even embrace the instruction of their leaders because they see it as being consistent. Oh, the Bible says you can drink, but you don't need to drink. Wait a second. Explain that to me again. Versus the Bible says you can drink, but the Bible also has a lot of restrictions and guidelines and other thoughts that you need to keep in mind if you're going to enjoy this liberty. A millennial will sit back and say, okay, so what restrictions are there? Because once again, it's not about what I'm saying. It's not about my opinion. We're just pointing to God. We're saying this is what God has to say. This is why at Calvary 316, we don't promote alcohol, but we're honest with what the Bible has to say and in our attempts to be consistent, to be respected by the next generation. We actively engage with millennials as to the appropriate and inappropriate ways this liberty can, should, or shouldn't be enjoyed. You can stick your head in the sand about the issue or you can address it because the Bible does. And we don't go out of our way to talk about alcohol. But when scripture brings it up, or it's a good example of the point I'm making, it's relevant. You see, we live in a culture that is equally dominated by empty religion, pagan hedonism, similar to what we find here in Acts 5. And today, as then, people, what are they hungry for? To be welcomed, to get tinglys, to be high-fived. 
No. People are hungry. I see it. I know you see it. Some of you felt it. We're hungry for something that's real. I live in a world that's fake, that's fleeting, that's failing, that promises and never makes good on it. I just want something genuine, something authentic. Calvary 316, that's all we're trying to offer. That's all we're trying to be. We want to be a community of believers who love Jesus, who love people, and live lives consistent with the truth of God's word. We want to be known as being genuine and authentic when it comes to our Christian experience. And you know, from the feedback that I've been given from many of you that have come to Calvary 316, have started to plug into the church culture here, that is almost the overarching feedback that I get of why you're here. Man, it's so refreshing. You teach the word, you love Jesus, you love people, and we just leave it there. It's genuine, it's authentic, it's raw, it's real, but that's what I want. That's what I'm not finding. That's why I'm here. That's why I am. Verse 15. I promise we'll, we'll go a little faster than that as we're working our way through the rest of the verses. So, they brought the sick into the streets. They laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem. They were bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Yeah. Exactly what's happening here, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm not 100% sure. Like this whole deal of the shadow of Peter, I mean, yes, on one aspect, it doesn't say that the shadow of Peter was healing anyone. It just says that there was this perception that the shadow of Peter was healing people. And so they're like diving out of windows, you know, getting just that the shadow might fall on them so that they can be healed. And you're not doing that typically if there's not some validity to the reality that something crazy is happening here, that something awesome is happening here, that something supernatural is happening here. I can't explain it. I don't understand how his shadow could be able to heal people. But I do know, as with other examples in the Bible, it would appear his shadow had become a point of contact whereby a person's faith in Jesus, who is the healer, could be activated. It's similar to the story that we find in Matthew chapter 9 with the woman who has uh, this sickness, the flow of blood for 12 years, and Jesus is going through this crowd, and she reaches out and touches the hem of his garment, and she's healed. Now, did the hem of his garment heal her? No. It was Jesus, but it was a point of contact. And I think we can apply this in, in a similar fashion to this particular passage. It should also be pointed out, by the way, that not all spiritual phenomenon can be naturally explained. I, I try to do it. I, I like to do it. I like to be as logical as I can. But understand, it's why we refer to these events as supernatural. The key is that the event itself doesn't defy or contradict the governing laws of nature, but many times a supernatural event is nothing more than the supernatural infusing of just what's natural. It's Jesus speeding up a process or getting into the midst of it. I mean, your body's pretty cool. It heals itself. And so Jesus reaches down, and sometimes there's instances where he's speeding up what is already natural. Verse 17, so the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is of the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation, and they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in common prison. Then, 
That's the key word here. Because then it provides us an important transition that gives us the timing for the event that's about to follow, but also the motivation behind the high priest's reaction. Luke says that these religious leaders were filled with indignation, or zealous in the Greek. It means an envious or a contentiousness, a rivalry, a zealous, fierce form of jealousy. And what would cause these religious leaders to have this kind of a reaction to people getting healed? I mean, really, what a great example of of a dead religion. That they are filled with indignation that people who are sick are healed. Like, at what point do you have to get to the reality that you're like, yeah, I know that you've been lame for all of your life and now you can walk, but how dare you? What? Like, this is craziness in regards to the reaction. So we have to consider what would cause this. Chapter earlier, the same group of people, the same group of Sadducees, the same group of religious leaders had threatened Peter and John to no longer speak in Jesus' name. And they hoped that in threatening them, they could contain what was happening. Verse 17 of chapter 4, Luke gives us a little insight into their reasoning. He says, but so that it spreads no further among the people, let's severely threaten them that they might not speak to no man in this name. And so now they're enraged because not only had the apostles ignored their threats and continued to preach in the name of Jesus, but things, according to Luke at this juncture, had now continued to spread to the point that was no longer just influencing Jerusalem proper, but now is spreading to the cities around Jerusalem. Clearly, a line of demarcation had been crossed. Something had to be done, which is why they laid their hands on the apostles, all 12 of them, and they put them into prison. And the grammar suggests that this was done peaceably, but also publicly. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out, and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people the words of this life. I mean, imagine the experience for these men. They're arrested, all 12 of them. They're thrown into prison. They're uncertain of the fate that would await them in the morning. But they know full well that they have just defied a very powerful group of men. They had kicked the hornet's nest. They had pitted themselves in direct opposition of the most powerful men in the land. And as they're there, I'm sure not able to sleep a little anxious, a little nervous, uncertain, probably praying, but waiting nonetheless. Luke tells us an angel of the Lord, which is literally translated like one of many messengers of Jesus. So one of many angels is sent with a message to intervene. This angel comes, opens the door of their cell, brings them out of prison, and leaves them with specific commands to go back into the temple and continue preaching to the people. Now, I kind of like to know how that happened, right? I mean, we're not really given any indication on how this took place. Did the angel come down and said, hey, let's hold hands and we're going to walk through that wall? Did the angel kind of get a crowbar and pop a window like, come on, let's get out of here? Like, how did this exactly happen? We're not told. And yet in verse 23, when morning came, the captain summoned the guards to bring the apostles before the Sanhedrin. They go, there's guards at the door. They open the door, which is securely locked, and ta-da, no one's there. So we know something supernatural is happening here. I would have loved to have known it, but either way, I love the fact God used an angel. Don't forget the Sadducees, the liberal religious 
party in Israel, they didn't believe in the supernatural, and they rejected the concept or the notion that there were such things as angels. And so it's these people who arrest the apostles, put them into jail, and Jesus is like, I'm going to totally mess with them. I'm going to send an angel to break them out because they don't even believe in angels. I find that awesome. And, and Jesus being a little sarcastic from heaven. And when they heard that, that they weren't there, they, they, they entered the temple, that this command, they, they went there early in the morning, they taught the high priest, those who were with him, they came, they called the council, all the elders, the children of Israel, they sent to the prison to have them brought, the officers came, did not find them, they returned, they reported saying, indeed, we found the prison shut securely, the guards standing outside the doors, and when we opened them, there was no one there. So the high priest, the captain of the temple, the chief priest, they heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be, or like, what in the world is going on? So someone came and told them, look, the men you put in prison last night are standing in the temple teaching the people. <laughs> I mean, what do you do with men like this? I mean, if I'm in this situation, and I'm kind of fearing for my life, and an angel breaks me out, dude, I'm going underground, right? <laughs> I am out without a doubt, like, peace. Peace. This was an opportunity. Thank you, God. And yet, they don't do this, do they? You, you threaten them, they preach Christ anyway. You arrest them, what do they do? They have an angel bust them out, they go back to the temple, and they do the most illogical thing possible, preach again in public. They're doing the same thing they were just arrested for. Now, for me, we'll look at this story in more details next week, but I do want to close with a thought, an observation. Why would Jesus supernaturally free these 12 men from prison, only to then send them back into the temple to preach, knowing full well that what would happen? They would be arrested again and brought right back before the Sanhedrin. Now understand, Jesus did not free these men because he didn't want them to stand before the Sanhedrin. That wasn't the intention. The intention was not a jailbreak so that they could escape. No, I think all along, Jesus wanted these 12 men to stand before this group of religious men again and preach the gospel for two reasons. One, even religious people need a savior. And I think God was giving them, Jesus was giving them just another opportunity to repent, another opportunity to convert, another opportunity to escape the judgment that was around the corner. I also think there's another reason that Jesus sent them back and that is that there was a young man who was a member of the Sanhedrin who's sitting there in opposition, direct opposition to Christianity, who's sitting there going to interrogate them. A young man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, have you ever wondered, like how does Luke know some of this stuff? Like he's writing history, a detailed account. He's only using eyewitnesses. A couple chapters earlier, he records a private conversation that only occurred within the Sanhedrin. How does Luke know that? The apostles aren't there. How does he record this conversation? How all this stuff took place? The 12 apostles have been jailbroke. They're in the temple preaching. How does he record what's happening in the Sanhedrin? Because there was an eyewitness. Luke traveled with Paul. And I think the whole purpose here, what Jesus is doing, is yes, he's sending them to preach to the Sanhedrin, to give them an opportunity to repent, but Jesus is doing something even deeper. He knows that there's a man that he's got plans for, and he sends, the, he sends these 12 men into the fiery furnace 
for one man, to preach to one man. And I think we have these two accounts in our story because they made a tremendous influence in the life of Paul. He would reject it, he would resist it, but he would always come back to it, that he knew what was taking place. And so on one aspect, Jesus didn't break them out of jail because he didn't want them to stand before the Sanhedrin. He, he wanted them to stand before the Sanhedrin. That wasn't the purpose. Or the angel would have broken them out and said, guys, go hide. I think the reason God broke them out, knowing full well they'd come back, is because he wanted them to know, these 12 men in particular, that no matter what situation they were to face in the future, no matter what situation or what prison they would be thrown into in the future, that they would know without a shadow of a doubt, without any inkling of skepticism, that they were exactly where Jesus wanted them to be. Because if they weren't, he had already proven that he could do what? At any time. Send an angel. Bust you out. So any cell that they would be sitting in, whatever situation they would be looking at, whatever thing that they were in the midst of, they could trust that if this is not where Jesus wants me to be, <laughs> he can send an angel. You see, he wanted them to know, to trust, to be confident that he had everything in control. I hope you understand that we have this story also so that you can know without a shadow of a doubt, that whatever situation, whatever prison cell, whatever thing you're facing that you can trust, wait a second, if this is not where Jesus wants me, he can get me out of it. And if I don't even see a way out, oh, he can provide one. He's got angels in heaven who can help me walk through walls. Like this stuff doesn't happen all the time. So I know that whatever I'm facing is what he has for me. I can trust that. I know that. I mean, when they get arrested again and brought back, they can be bold. Why? Because if they're not supposed to be there, then it's like 30 angels come and rush them out. Or maybe they just go invisible and walk out. Like, Jesus can do anything. And so they can trust that he was in total control. And I find that to be so encouraging. I hope you do too as well. We'll pick up where we left off. If you have any questions about this morning's message and some of the subject matter, I'll be here at the altar. would love to discuss it with you in detail. If you join me, let's pray. Father.